I started meditating 15 minutes a day and I don't care if my meditation takes me to a stressful 15 minutes thinking about my upcoming workday or a meditative zen-like thing floating on top of a cloud somewhere. I didn't care where it took me, but I would spend 15 minutes alone in my head. And then I actually started a guided meditation that took me through gratitude, love, um, thankfulness, and visualizing my future. And so that 15 minutes a day pays dividends every single day. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, just finished interviewing Eric Severson. Eric is author of the book, Ordinary to Extraordinary. Fascinating, fascinating story. I can't say that you will enjoy the interview, but I will say that I certainly did. And just Eric's journey of just traveling around the world as a young person, just out of high school and just in college, and what meeting different cultures did for him and just set him up into this new work of serving and supporting and helping others around the world, as well as just his story being an encouragement to the Secrets of Success listeners. So thank you again for listening and being part of our community. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on. Let other people know. Leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. Let other people know about the show so that we can kind of grow the group here as well as the tribe and be able to serve others. So again, thank you very much for hanging out with us. Now this week, you know, CRG is the sponsor of the show is I just want to encourage one of the things we talk about with Eric is just being mindful, just being aware, just being awake of your thoughts. We are so distracted that just being quiet and meditating, being prayerful, whatever it is that works for you, is just being with your own thoughts is very, very important. So we actually have, a, now I'm not sure when you're listening to this, it could be a year from when we're recording it, but we have a new course that's come out called Why Are, you know, What Do You Really Value? It's based on our values preference indicator. And my encouragement is, is that when we know who we are and we spent the time to get clear about what our core values are, then we make a play on words that you can make the right decision every time. So I cover in a 19 module e-course, online course, you get the values preference indicator with it, is, and we'll have the link uh, in the show notes for you. And you can go to the CRG around our online courses and it's on the values preference indicator is then you can make the right decision every time. You then are in your zone. All the research is clear. When I know who I am, my stress goes down, my ability to make decisions increases, my ability to actually receive feedback, both positive and negative, increases as well. So all of those are there for you. And thank you again for listening. And so here's our guest, Eric Severson. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, all of us want to be successful in life and be able to bring our best. And today's guest is going to help us with that, but also really around the, have you ever heard of the concept of balance? You know, what is that? I mean, can we actually have success and still have balance? So welcome our guest, Eric Severson. Eric, did I say that right? Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. Eric, you're the author of the new book, Ordinary to Extraordinary, and we'll get into that a, a bit, but thank you for joining us on Secrets of Success today. Thanks, Ken. I'm really happy to be here. Okay. Well, we're in the same time zone, so we're all awake, and you're in California. I'm in Vancouver. So, Eric, as we normally do in most shows, we want to get a sense of uh, our guest and their journey, 
And so, Eric, where, where did you, where were you born and where did you grow up? What was a little bit about your childhood? Okay. So um, I grew up in a very average household. It was a suburb of Tacoma, Washington called Parkland. And um, family, both parents worked and went to school and, you know, didn't, didn't really get great grades, didn't fail, but didn't get great grades. And, and one of the things about being average is looking back, I realized that I was, everybody saw me as just this normal kid and, you know, okay at sports, not great, not bad, but, but inside there were things, you know, pulling at me a lot and nobody knew how kind of self-conscious I really was about the cowlick, that kind of little piece of my hair that was always seemed to be going the wrong direction. And, you know, how, how nervous I got if I was around a girl I had a crush on or, or how, how hard it really was to study for a, a, a math test when we're simply mm. doing, you know, addition and subtraction. And so going through that experience um, was, was a little bit stressful for me and nobody knew about it. Um, I wasn't a good student, like I mentioned, really going up. I had a C, maybe C minus grade point average. And then when something actually did click, I'm a junior in high school, suddenly everything became easy. I decided I wanted to go from, probably at the time I wanted to be a veterinarian, I think, to a college professor. And I went from... Well, those are close, Eric. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And that veterinarian was a veterinarian, a policeman, the fireman, all those stereotypical things that a kid wants to be. Mm. But when I finally had a, an, an academic goal, the studying suddenly became much more easy. But I didn't have a lot of support. I was known as the, the kid who just kind of got by a little bit. Mm. And my college counselor... My brother went to Stanford and then Harvard for his, for his MBA, and so he's three and a half years older than me. My sister was super successful, four years older than me. So, so no, I got no family pressure, right, Eric? You know what? The, the, the wild thing is, Ken, I, I, my parents really didn't put a lot of pressure on me, but they spent so much energy fostering my brother and sister, four and three years ahead of me, <clears throat> that I didn't quite get the same attention that they, that they did. But when I got ready for my college, or like the counselor interview in high school, I knew it was going to be a half an hour and I'd probably leave with leaflets of different schools just like my brother did. And I was so excited mm -hmm. and I get in there and now I want to be a college professor. I'd be getting A's now for a year. So she says to me, Eric, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to UCLA. And she's looking at my transcript going from C minuses for the first two and a half years. And she pushes herself away from the table, leans forward and says, you'll never get into a school like that. And she walked out and that was it, Ken. I, I didn't know me? what to do. Um, Man, yeah, and there's nothing bugs me more, Eric, when people of influence just really have no idea about the impact of their statement. I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah. isn't that, you know, reflecting at it now and you didn't let it hinder you because we'll get into your success in a moment. But isn't it interesting that what do you think motivated now that you know what you know to to drive a person to make a statement like that? Yeah, it's that that still baffles me to this day. And and I didn't know if she's going to come back or not. I still had 28 minutes of my my time left. So I sat there fighting back tears wondering if I should leave the room or if she's going to come back with a different brochure that's not Stanford or Harvard. And she didn't. She 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 never came back. That was my interview. And at first I thought, you know what? She's right. And I had a mo a long moment of thinking she's absolutely mm. right. And I ended up going to a community college, but I decided I'm not going to let her stop me. And I studied really hard um, at Green River Community College for two years, um, exceptionally hard studying. And I got into UCLA two years later, so I was happy to be able to um, prove her wrong. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Now, let's backtrack a bit. And then, first of all, thank you for overcoming that. 
And those of you that are listening to this show, please don't ever do that to people. I mean, my story, and many of you have listened to many episodes, is that, you know, my grade nine teacher said basically the same thing here, that I would never amount to anything because I couldn't read or write. And uh-huh. It was when I did my, <clears throat> excuse me, my master's degree, they discovered I was mildly dyslexic. So, uh, and now I'm an author. So, like, right. go figure. So, if Dude. I would have listened to the grade nine teacher, you would have listened to your college sort of career counselor. Last thing that that person should have been doing yep. is that you really deflate people's directions and their purpose and their calling. So, thank you for overcoming that. But let's d- digress for a second. What did your parents do for a living? What sort of their professions? Okay, so my, my dad was in car sales, and so he was a, a manager of car sales lots, doing both used cars and new cars and things like that. And he had a few various different jobs, uh, different places that he worked while I was growing up. And so there was some stability there. It wasn't a super high paying necessarily. Mm-hmm thing he did. And then my mom was in a great company called Home Interiors. And and so she sold interior decorations. She would go in the evenings, there would be like a show at somebody's home and they invite, I don't know, 10, five people. And she would show them different candlesticks and pictures they could hang on the wall. Mm. And that actually, Ken, is something I didn't realize until I was, I was an adult that really kind of influenced me because she was part of the Zig Ziglar um, kind of curriculum. The the owner of that company and Zig Ziglar were friends and he spoke to my mom at different conventions multiple times. And I didn't even realize what an influence that was Mm -hmm. until later because as average as we were and as little support that my parents gave me as studying and things like that, they never criticized me, my brother or sister or tried to dissuade us from dreams no matter how illogical the dreams were. Mm. So at least at home, you had some support on that. And by the way, I met Zig Ziglar in person way back in the late 80s. Awesome. And just an awesome individual. And of course, you know, long gone now, but his legacy continues with his son. I still learn things from, uh, from his old recordings. And yeah, his son, Tom's doing great. It's exciting. Excellent. So now you're at uh, UCLA. What were you taking for courses? I took anthropology, and and I'm going to back up one tiny step, too, that we'll probably get back to, but I realized at community college that even getting straight A's wouldn't guarantee me going to UCLA, so I decided I need to do something extraordinary to stand out from all of the other great applicants, and so I convinced my parents to allow me to go to Africa, and I I basically wanted to see what was there. I read the book by Chinue Achebe called Things Fall Apart, and that was totally different from anything I learned in my my classes in in high school about history and geography. And so so I wanted to see it for myself. And I I did, um, paid for it all myself, figured it out all myself, spent about $50 a month when I was out there. And and so I I had to set myself apart. And then um, that got me to UCLA. And I really fell in love with culture at that point. So I studied anthropology, and I, I did my undergrad at UCLA, studying under an amazing guy, Peter B. Hammond, um, that influenced thousands of students' lives in a positive way. He was way, way, way ahead of his time as far as understanding. He was also dyslexic and had things that he really overcame. So when he saw me, when, by the time I got to UCLA, I still thought I was faking it. I'm getting A's. Mm. I, I was getting straight A's, but I still thought because of my childhood um, and struggling through academics, I still thought that I was kind of faking it. He was the very first person that made me realize I'm not faking it. I'm actually doing it. And so he helped me get multiple scholarships and grants and things like that that helped me go towards my goals that I wouldn't have even considered applying for without the belief that he put mm-hmm. into me. 
It's isn't it interesting, Eric, about how much confidence or how important confidence is to our directions and our decisions. Absolutely, and and I and I think the huge distinction between confidence and arrogance, because I I love confidence. Of course, once you tip that scale, um, then there's there's some negative a negative wake behind um, somebody who who gets too arrogant. But no, I think confidence is one of the best best ingredients in success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we use the word self honoring versus self centered in Very how nice. I can honor myself with that. I had a great question. Oh, I know what it was. I've taken some notes here. Let's just go back to Africa. How long were you there and what were you doing there and how did that come about? Okay, so I, I kind of decided I wanted to see Africa and it was really a naive idea. I was 18, I think, at the time. And so I told my parents, hey, I want to go to Africa. And they quickly said no. And, <laughs> and so I, I spent eight months mowing lawns after school and on weekends and all summer to be able to afford it. And I couldn't afford to get all the way to Africa, so I flew to London and hitchhiked down through. My first night in London was at a runaway shelter, so I really didn't have a lot of money. I hitchhiked my way down through into Spain, took a boat across from Gibraltar to Morocco, and then worked my way across into Algeria, down south through the Sahara, and ended in Central African Republic through Nigeria and Cameroon and uh, quite a few well, other. What an countries. adventure! Yeah, it was it was it was amazing. And not and to I date lo- you, Eric. What years were those? This was um, 1989, so I was 20 years old. Well, now, no cell phones for everybody really listening. Yes, cell phones were coming out, but the handheld uh, cell phone was for rare occasion. Yeah. So where did you get the chutzpah to pull this off? You know what? I really, I just, I believed I could do it. And looking back, like I said, there was a little bit of naivete to it. The The trip was much more dangerous and, and really dangerous things did happen a few times. But for the most part, I learned, I learned the beauty of people trying to help. And it was just, it was just me believing that it was possible and, mm. and, and going for it. When I landed in London, I had no idea how I would even get down to Spain to get across a boat to, to Gibraltar. I mean, from Gibraltar to, to Africa. Um, and I just kind of did it as I went. And I think that that vulnerability really allowed me to help, mm. uh, allowed me to realize how willing people are to help when I'm vulnerable. And you know what, Can I actually use that in business now when I'm in a um, situation where there's a kind of like a deadlock of me and somebody else were butting heads about something and it's not going well, I'll think maybe it's a partner in a different company. I'll think of a way to put myself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. I'll ask them help for something irrelevant to the topic we're dealing with. Once the, once they see that I need help with something and they help me get through this other thing, suddenly the tension in the relationship is backed off quite a bit. And they're so much more willing to hear, to work, to negotiate. And so, so I've realized that vulnerability is a, is a great, great thing. And I just kept going and fear every night. I didn't know where I was going to sleep. So I, and I walked massive stretches. Sometimes I'd walk 60 kilometers in a row and I'd stumble upon some small village and it's getting to be dusk. I don't know if they're going to be nice to me. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. I don't know what I'm going to eat. And almost inevitably somebody would come up and they all would run out. The whole village would usually come out and they'd, you know, often grab my hand and take me to, you know, somebody's house. And I was learning bad French at the time, but I got by mostly in, in, in <laughs> French and they would feed me, let me sleep, sleep in their hut and, or house, depending on where it was. So that was also a, just a beautiful time of seeing people help me. And people pulled knives on me and people threw rocks at me. So there were a few bad moments as well, too. Mm. Now, 
if we were just to isolate this experience at your young age, what were some of the lessons you really, really learned from, from this experience? The vulnerable one was one. And there's one key, the the kind of like monumental lesson in my life um, was I was hitchhiking. No, I couldn't hitchhike across the border from Benin to Nigeria. So I had to take a shared taxi cab. So it's me and, and five Africans in this little car, we get through the border, which was a nightmare. Then about a half a mile later or so, there was a military checkpoint and they get me out of the car. They search all my stuff and they want a small bribe and it took about an hour. Then another, you know, half mile, maybe there's another military checkpoint. And guess what they do? They get me out of the car. They search all my stuff. They want a small bribe. And this time we didn't even get one. So this happens three or four times. And then finally, the cab driver decides that he's had enough of this. Um, he needed to get to Lagos. So the next checkpoint starts arriving. And he gunned the car, tried to speed past it. And one guy up ahead runs up and throws a spike board in front of the car. Another guy's shooting his gun in the air, running behind us. And now it's not politely get me out of the car. They put the gun to my head, drag me out of the car, and put me into a hut. And he's yelling at me in now pidgin English, because English is the common language in Nigeria, when I'd been speaking French for over a month, mm-hmm. month, month and a half. And so he says, what are you doing here? And so I say, just we in tourist. I'm a tourist. And he just rage filled his face. He stuck the end of the gun in my mouth and it was still warm. I could taste the gunpowder. And he said, why don't you speak English with me? You're a spy. And he, and then at one point I'm trying to mumble with the gun in my mouth. And at one point, you know, he's like killing is easy. You know, nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. And for about an hour, he's got the gun trained in my face. By this point, the, my pack is strewn all over the hut. Somebody else brought my pack in. And then finally he says, you know what? I don't think you're a spy. In fact, I like Americans because they give me gifts. And lo and behold, he puts my tent and my hunting knife in front of me as if to say, I'm going to keep one and he's going to take the other as a present. And so I took my knife and he took my tent and, and, and I got out of that. But that, that fear that I had was just absolutely tremendous. And then I finished Africa. I'm back at Green River College and I'm walking across campus. This is now, no, this is January and the gun in my face was November. And so somebody ran up to me with a flyer and said, Hey, Eric, this job is perfect for you. It's a job in Japan for a student to go over and help Green River start a branch campus there. And I was so excited about this job, Ken, that I couldn't think of anything else. I Mm. prepared, I learned a few Japanese words. I studied everything about the job, got an interview. So now the day of the interview, I'm walking towards, I'm driving first and my stomach starts to feel kind of weird. And then I get out of my car on campus ready for the interview. And I'm, I'm wearing a suit for the first time I'd ever worn a suit for an interview for anything. And my hand starts shaking, locking my car. Then as I entered the building where the interview is going to be, my hand started to sweat, like embarrassingly wet. And I started to panic. And then I couldn't even remember. First, I couldn't remember the Japanese words I had studied. Then I couldn't remember why I was even there. Everything. I just went blank. And in my panic, a little voice said to me, you know what, Eric? A month and a half ago, you had a gun in your face. You want this job, but in the big picture, it's not that big of a deal. And all of a sudden, I took a deep breath, and I felt calm. I felt right in the moment, in control. I went, wiped off my hands, knocked on the door, shook hands, interviewed, and got the job. And so that stuck with me of putting fear into perspective. And now I realize that fear is meant to make us stronger, sharper, and smarter in the moment. You know, 
I like to joke that I, if I'm being chased, chased by a tiger, I don't want to be calm. I want to be scared as heck uh, because all those pumping with chemicals help us become stronger, smarter, sharper, and, and faster. And so, so I've applied that now for years and years and years in business. And I try and teach people that when you feel that little nervousness before a big public speaking event, that's making you better, not mm. holding you back. As long as you redirect it, it's exactly. just what you said that you did. Other people would have collapsed <laughs> and the panic attack would have just finished them. So now that you went to Japan then, yep. and how long were you there? So my number one motto is things work out. And this is an example. I was there for three and a half months, but I was supposed to be there for a whole school year. And um, they changed the immigration laws on me while I was there. So rather than being able to renew my tourist visa into a working visa, which was legal when I entered Japan, but not when I tried to do it three months later, I stayed three and a half months. So now I'm 21 years old. I turned 21 in Japan. I'd been working with students, but I had all the privileges of an employee, but all the benefits of a student. It was a great situation. And they were paying me a, a ton for my standards when I was 21 years old. So now I have four and a half free months, a pocket full of cash and nothing planned. So I traveled around China and Thailand and Indonesia. And that really got me into a, the real desire to see as much culture as I can. And so that it ended up to be a great thing that I got kicked out of Japan. <laughs> well, that's pretty wild. So you, traveling on your own independently in these cultures, that's obviously something that works for you. Yeah. And I think traveling alone, I, I, I love traveling with people, but there's something special about traveling alone. And one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten in my life, I was, it was, this is also when I was young in Green River Community College, there was a philosophy conference. And afterwards, a few of us were sitting and having, you know, kind of like a wine and cheese soiree. And this professor of Islamic studies, he was probably 70 years old, big, long beard. We'd been talking for about an hour and all of a sudden he stopped and there were maybe a few other people around this conversation that we were having and he stopped and paused and he looked me deeply in the eye and he said, Eric, you've had time to think. And I consider that one of my biggest compliments ever. And part of that was because of my travel alone. There were days, sometimes I'd sit next to the side of the road north of the Sahara for three days trying to get a, a ride. So there were sometimes days where I was just kind of in my head and I really love that time with myself. Mm. And it's interesting society now, Eric, where it's nearly the opposite. Oh my gosh, the, absolutely. The, the feed and just, you know, you and I both grew up, I'm a little bit older, uh, grew up in a, in a space where social media was, just didn't exist. In fact, when I first got in this industry, this is my 30th year, there wasn't even email. So I uh -huh. think that's pretty wild for people. And, you know, we were one of the first companies to actually have a website <laughs> in wow. the 90s. So when you think about it, what do you say to your clients and others that are our listeners, you know, the secrets of success listeners? What do you learn from, from that one lesson? What, what, what can you share with us about that? Well, definitely, I think that we, we do need to take our time to ourselves and you, you don't have to go across the planet to do it. About three or three and a half years ago, maybe four now, is when I, it was, it was actually, uh, let's see, who was it? Somebody, somebody was talking about, habits of billionaires and thought leaders and highly successful athletes and what their their habits are and what they do and one of the core things that almost all of them do it was tim ferris this is that's who i was reading mm -hmm. um and is meditate 
and then there were a few other things. Exercise was another one that was really important. And I know your interview with Tim Warren really brings up that idea of exercising is fundamentally important, and I, I totally agree with that. But even meditating, I started meditating 15 minutes a day, and I don't care if my meditation takes me to a stressful 15 minutes thinking about my upcoming workday or a meditative zen-like thing sitting floating on top of a cloud somewhere. I didn't care where it took me, but I would spend 15 minutes alone in my head. And then I actually started a guided meditation that took me through gratitude, um, love, um, thankfulness, and visualizing my future. And so that 15 minutes a day pays dividends every single day. If I don't do it, I find myself more tired in the, e the afternoon, for, for example. It just, it helps everything become more efficient. So I, I definitely think any, whether it's walking by yourself in the woods, jogging by yourself, or meditating, time to just uh, think to yourself, I think, is something a lot of people are missing. When I have a meeting with somebody and I show up five minutes early and I'm sitting in a corner of maybe it's a subway station, um, the first thing that you think of doing is opening your phone to fill that five minutes. So I try and resist. I'll usually look at my phone to see what has happened, and that takes about 30 seconds to make sure there's nothing to take care of. And then I'll put it down and I'll spend the next four and a half minutes doing absolutely nothing. Mm. That would be difficult for many people listening to this show. Yeah. And the benefit, of course, when we think about the research around um, mindfulness, be here now, whatever format, is this, this distracted life does take us out. You know, one of the things that I do personally is I love riding motorcycle. Now, most individuals will ride with others, but that's actually my thinking time. Uh -huh. So you have to concentrate to ride, <laughs> and then you're thinking. And you're in nature and it's beautiful and I just, so I'll go on rides that are six and seven hours uh, that are just on my own and I'm fine by it. And it's an interesting because it, now you can't be on your phone. <laughs> yeah. And, and Ken, and that's, that's awesome. I didn't know that about you. So one of the, the company that I helped grow as international business development was called, is called Eagle Rider. And what we do is it's motorcycle rental company. And so when I came on, 12 years ago, working with them, we had 500 motorcycles in a few locations, and now there are 4,000 and over 200 locations. I opened Cabo San Lucas on last Friday. And so um, oh, and what, what's amazing about I'm connected this, now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got a bunch of locations. We've got one in Vancouver even. So, so what we do, the thing I love about it, I will never have a job that I don't believe all in. And so we provide these, that meditative quality that you were talking about for people internationally who want most, a ton international customers who want to come to the United States and have that amazing experience on a bike. And then they get that meditative thing. They, so it's, it's, it's a great thing that meditate, riding a motorcycle is a hundred percent meditation. I don't like the calm devices and music when I, when I ride, I'm like you, Ken. Mm -hmm. Well, I have the Bluetooth speakers, but I don't use them. Uh -huh. And so it's just, um, I, I refuse to, unless I'm riding with my wife, Brenda, who also has a bike. Uh -huh, so nice. That's about 50% of the time when we go out is that then we can have conversations together and connect. And interesting, you, your connections then is very focused as well. So even from a relationship point of view, that, that helps. But enough about me. Let's just kind of uh, slip back into you graduate from UCLA with what? Uh, anthropology. And then what, where did the journey take you from there? So I uh, actually I accepted and was accepted to NYU, um, and I deferred for a year. And then I ended up being contacted by University of Virginia, and um, they, they 
said a lot of great things, so I decided to, to go that direction instead. So I took a year off, and I lived in Paris for seven months. I worked in Alaska for a little bit, and so I, I built a few more experiences, and then I finished my master's degree at the University of Virginia, um, also in anthropology, and that took me deeper as an undergrad, um, Dr. Hammond, the one I mentioned earlier, he persuaded me to do an undergraduate thesis, um, which actually won Best Undergraduate Research at UCLA in 1991-92. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And so he, 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 I went down to South America to study a tribe um, in French Guiana, just north of Brazil and, and east of Suriname. And I lived with them for three months that time. And then when I went to graduate school, I decided to go f deeper into the forest and live with this group called the Wayana Indians. And there, there was only one person who had written about them in French. And I, I went by myself. I went, I, things worked out and got me placed. I, and I had to have permission to study them or to, to go into the forest because there's an administrative checkpoint so they don't get diseases and for protection from exploitation and things like that. So some of these Indians, um, and I lived three months with them that time too, they had, I was the first non-Indian they'd ever seen when I got a certain point up these three waterfalls into the forest. And it was just an amazing experience to see, you know, people living um, like they had for, for hundreds or if not thousands of years, still hunting with bone arrow. And the interesting thing about that in, that I use in business now is their, their chief of the Wayana has no enforceable authority. So anything he does is just... If they want to follow him, they will. If not, he can't enforce it. So um, I heard stories of old chiefs thinking that they should go to war with another village. He picks up his bow and starts walking towards the village. And if people don't believe in it, he walks, over, he walks alone and dies alone. Um, if they do believe it, they pick up their bows and follow him. I didn't see that. But what I did see is the chief would pick up their little makeshift hose they have slash and burn agriculture and go over and start weeding the garden. And then next thing you know, you got five guys from the village and women and kids out weeding the garden. And it was really neat to see that lead by example ethic. Mm. Wow. And so how old were you when you were doing that? Um, the first time I was probably 21 and the second time I think 23. Wow. So a rich, rich life, Eric, as far as the travels and the cultures and just interacting with them. Now you're on the East Coast. Uh -huh. uh, are you teaching there now to the students? So, 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 yep. So then I went to, um, uh, after, uh, yeah, after my master's, I um, went to Thailand actually to teach. So I got, after my master's, I, during my graduate school, I was, I, I, I was given, so to speak, to the English as a second language department to, to teach for the head of that department um, as part of my, my stipend. My tuition was, remiss I had tuition remission, but I didn't have living expenses, so I taught ESL, and I loved it. So I got more certified for that, so I went back to UCLA Extension and got certified for what's called TEFL and TESOL, teaching English as a second language and as a foreign language, and went to Thailand because I wanted to fight um, Muay Thai, kickboxing, um, and then I taught um, on the side. And I thought I was going over there to box, but really the teaching is what I fell more in love with. And I realized that was a direction I wanted to go. So I, when I moved back to Virginia, I taught at Virginia Commonwealth University for three years and uh, in English as a second language and then moved back to um, Los Angeles. In grad school, I met a, a girl. And so when I went to Thailand, I missed her. So I moved back early and I spent three years trying to get her parents to, to, to like me in Richmond, Virginia. And then our honeymoon was driving from Virginia to Los Angeles. Just loaded up the car and then away you went. 
Like, yeah, the, I rode my motorcycle across first and then flew back, and then she and I uh, did a unique, new, unique honeymoon of nine days cross-country on a car. So now do you still ride? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And now you have a public audience. What do you ride, Eric? So it's a, it's a chopper. I have, it's a Harley Davidson chopper. I like riding anything. So I like the dual sports. I like, uh, you know, the sport touring, but mine's, uh, it's modeled. I had a 77 iron had an old classic chopper. And so then I have a newer bike. It's, it's a 2000 Harley that I chopped up to make, to be identical to my 77. So the only difference is it's fast and it never breaks down. Well, well those choppers aren't the most comfortable to ride long distance, my friend. No, absolutely. The, the biggest mistake I made was taking my wife on a ride at one of the bikes from Eagle Rider because it was a big bagger with a big back seat and speakers and armrests. And after that, she didn't like bouncing around in the fender of the chopper nearly so much. So at least I have access to pretty much any bike I want because I do work in the motorcycle industry. So that's, that's good. Okay, well, there we go. There's inside track. So Eric, I mean, we've really been talking about your journey, but it's been fascinating. And I'm sure the listeners have been saying, wow, that's, that's incredible. So you have your book. When did that uh, come out, Ordinary to Extraordinary? So it was published um, October, so almost getting close to a year ago. And basically, it, it's little adventures from my life. And when I first wrote it, I thought that's, a, that's what the book would be. I wrote it for myself originally. And then my friends all said, hey, you should publish this. So I got excited and contacted a book agent who read it and got back to me and said, hey, Eric, you and all your friends are going to love this. And I said, that's not a compliment, is it? And he said, not at all. So he said, I need to restructure this with something that's going to touch more than just people who think a few stories are interesting. So then I reworked the whole book. And this is where I think kind of the mindfulness and the, the, your, your leadership type things come in is Emily S. Bahani Smith wrote this book called The Power of Meaning that says the pillars of meaning are belonging, purpose, storytelling and transcendence. And so I reworked all my stories into four categories of these things. And there are pre and post chapters explaining how did I find meaning because of this unique relationship with this woman in Paris? How did I find purpose because of this act in South America? How did I find a, a moment of awe that changed my life by watching the Aurora Borealis in, in, in Alaska? And so I reworked it so that it's reader focused rather than me focused. And one of my favorite things is to wake up in the morning, check my email, and there's some email from somebody I have, I've never met that says, hey, I read your book, and it inspired me to do this. Um, so I'm really happy with how it turned out and the reader focus it now has, although it's full of adventures from you know, around the world. Now, uh, before I get into more about the book, Eric, what are you doing now as a profession? I do work with this company called Eagle Rider, and I do business development for them. Um, I've also got my own company called Innovative Educational Services, and that's branched into three main parts. One is student training for students who want to study English in America, um, and, that, and I just got back from China. I just spent two weeks in Beijing doing a writing workshop for people coming to study in America in English. And then I, uh, there's also a public speaking section from that. And my main themes are overcoming fear, going from knowledge to action. So, and that's kind of become a big part about it. And then also I do business English training as well. So there's three components to that company. Oh, awesome. Excellent. By the way, my wife's TESOL certified, so I, I get it. It's in the All family. right. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're related. Motorcycles and TESOL. Oh, there oh, there we go. <laughs> we're, we're almost brothers. Yep. So, with, so with that, Eric, you know, when you're thinking about your book, and there's a couple of themes there, we have about 10 minutes left, and then we've got to wrap that up. 
But when we think about fear and hindrances, your life has been this amazing adventure. And you took risks when many other people wouldn't. So what would you say to listeners who have thought about these things and then in their head right now as they've listened to your story said, are you kidding? I don't know if I'd ever have that kind of courage to do it. What are you teaching us in your book that the listeners this very moment after the show is over, they can start implementing? One of them is to just become aware of more things that you're doing anyway. So for example, if you're having some friends that you maybe haven't seen over, maybe you and your wife are having a couple over for dinner, rather than just having them over for dinner and rolling dice to see where it goes, spend a few minutes to think, what do I want to happen in this evening? Um, What would they really think would be interesting. So even whether it's a conversation piece or directions it wants to go, that, that, that really be intentional about what are your goals of getting together with this couple maybe that you haven't seen for a while. And then small things of getting in habits of overcoming fear, doing something in this, I kind of stole from Tim Ferriss, who stole from somebody else, where I, I did this for about three months when I was um, in this period three years ago. And it was amazing the results of every time I went to a coffee shop, I would ask, hey, can I get a 10% discount just for no reason? I've gone buying my $2.25 double espresso and I say, can I get 10% off? And it's shocking, Ken, how scared I was to just ask this question, even though I didn't care about the result. And the funny thing is how often, I'd say 30% of the time, they just kind of laugh and say, okay. And, mm-hmm. but, I, but it got me into the habit of doing something that was out of my comfort zone. And then similarly, I'd be sitting at the coffee. And again, I try not to use my digital devices when I'm even having coffee alone. I'm trying to be aware and may, maybe make eye contact and, and um, when appropriate, ask somebody a question and break that barrier <clears throat> that we've got so much. We're in our little bubbles. And so th- those are small things. But the main, main thing is igniting your goal. Every single one of your listeners right now has a number of goals. Some of them are easy. Some of them are probably what you consider almost unreasonable or impossible. And the number one thing I'd like people to do is to think of a goal that they really believe in and picture that goal with a wick, like a a stick of dynamite with a big long wick coming out. And just in your imagination, light that wick with a lighter. And once that catches fire, every single day, take some small tiny action towards it because thinking about the goal is not going to do anything. But once you ignite that goal and start thinking about it daily and just write down, jot down one thing every day, whether it's a tiny thing or a difficult thing. And as long as you do one thing every day towards it, it keeps it in your mind. And that the chances of that happening are, 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 are huge. Mm. There are a lot of people who think about that. So are there other reasons that people don't take action? Fear is the biggest one. I think fear and laziness I think are the two biggest. And this is where some, a lot of people in our circle can, where they're studying and they're, they're speakers and they, they, especially the ones who are just starting out, they get so excited about their goals that they start reading, whether it's Tony Robbins, and they, they, maybe they read the classics, Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie, and they're really getting excited. And then they, maybe they get Tim Ferriss and then Brendan Richard, all of these things that they're reading, they're getting more and more excited and they're getting more and more knowledge but they really don't jump off the ledge because they think they're making themselves better, which they are, um, by reading. But there's a point when they know enough, they need to just start. And so mm-hmm. that's the key, I think, is just starting overcoming the, both the fear and the laziness. And I'm an incessant list taker. Uh, I make lists 
um, every, every Monday I go through a massive one of all my projects I'm working on and then I circle the top three and I put a star by the one that is, scares me the most and it's usually the one I have to, to, to do and it keeps me taking action on things rather than just being lazy or scared to start. Mm. What other recommendations do you have to the listeners so that they would get out of this, this grip of fear and take action? The one, the easy thing that, that I like the, your secrets of success. If I was, if you're going to say, Eric, what are your secrets of success? The quick one is I'm going to say that I stole from some of Tim Ferriss's writing was meditate, visualize my future and present tense. Um, I do that every single morning in my meditation um, and then taking action things. And that exercise is absolutely important. Somebody asked Richard Branson, what is the key to your success? And evidently he said exercise <laughs> because that's one thing that we often f forget about. And then everybody, I think, has this idea of work-family balance. People talk about that all of the time. I think there's another key ingredient in that, and it's the self that we're so busy um, trying to make our, our work work out and do all the things we need to that, and we're so considered concerned with pleasing our family, our wives, and our kids if we have them, and that 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 balance, it, it's almost like a teeter-totter. But I think that there's another component, which is the self, that we forget about taking care of the self. And I know for me, when I go out, I just climbed Mount Elbrus in July. Um, the highest mountain in Europe is in Russia. And it's, it's 18,500 feet. It takes eight days on the mountain. And it's, it's a big deal. I was away from my family for eight days um, to climb this mountain. However, my wife knows when I get back, my charge of life makes me a better husband, a better father, and I can spend mm -hmm. so much more time with them enjoying every second, cherishing every second, because I just spent eight days away from them. And so even in, it doesn't have to be eight days on a mountain. It could be reading a newspaper and, and taking your hour away from everybody else, going surfing for three hours away from the family. So I think a lot of people forget to take care of the self. And I think being a good family person and a good worker are contingent upon really taking care of yourself first. Mm, agreed. Agreed. So Eric, how can people find out about you and then just give them your book title and all that kind of stuff so that they can find out more about you? Yep. So the, the easiest jumping board is um, my website is ericseverson.com. It's E-R-I-K-S-E-V-E-R-S-E-N.com. And then my email's up there. My book is Ordinary to Extraordinary, and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much wherever you want. And um, and again, that, that, that book, it's really fun because it is it, I, hopefully reader-centric, but just a really fun read. And you know, Ken, I, I don't do this very often at all. This morning when I was just thinking about my interview with you, I thought, there are a few people who think, oh man, I'd love to read that book, but they don't take action to go to Amazon and buy it. So the first three people who just email me with secrets of success in the subject line and their address I will mail an absolutely free hard copy or a paperback of my book um, mm -hmm. and pay the shipping and everything. Just because if there's anybody who's, any of your listeners are thinking, you know what, I kind of want to read that. Send a quick email and I'm going to send three away. Oh, awesome. That's very kind of you, Eric, to be able to do it. And, you know, just, again, giving back and you receive. We know the program there. The other Absolutely. one is you mentioned you have, a, for everybody else, you have a gift for everybody else if they want to go online for this PDF. Explain that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's been a lot of books recently on habits. Um, 
and and I collected basically, and I've read almost all of them, um, and then I've been to multiple seminars that talk about habits, success habits. So I boiled them down and I created this 21 day, um, and it's called the um, uh, Extraordinary Habits Challenge. And every day it adds one simple positive habit. The first one is simply breathing deeply. So I think that's not too hard. doesn't take a lot of time. I think the second one is drink more water. And then it builds up to things that do take a little more effort. But there are um, 11 habits. And then after that, there's a task to do every single day, just one task on top of the 11 habits that you do every day. So it's a 21-day challenge to try and get you to really focus on your, your moment, your goals, and things like that. It's super simple, but has a lot of change. And if you go to my website and there's a click on there, um, you can download that. It's 28 pages, I think, for free, a uh, free P PDF. And anybody who goes through it, I love to hear their comments because uh, it's funny, comments at the start are, this is kind of easy. I don't think it's, it, it's working. And then by the end, they're like, oh my gosh. So it's kind of a fun little 21 day habit challenge. Well, Eric, again, that's very kind of you. So as a wrap up, what would be your final sort of encouragement to the audience today? I'm going to stick with the take action. Light that wick. Think of your goal and light that wick on it. Bruce Lee, um, one of my heroes, said, uh, willing is not enough. We must apply. Um, and then he, he, he also says, we, 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 knowing is not enough. We must do. And that's what I would like to say is think of something that's important to you and do it. Mm, absolutely. Well, Eric, thanks for spending the time with us today. Ken, I've really enjoyed this. It's great how many things we have in common, and I, I look forward to, to being in touch. Oh, we're going to be going off air and talking about bikes here in a second. All right. <laughs> Secrets of Success uh, listeners, I do have a bias there. Thank you, Eric, for being on. His book is Ordinary to Extraordinary. Make sure you go online, go to a site, find out more, get that free PDF, download that. All of these are action items. You know, everybody listening, you matter. But your highest level of contribution is when you take action, when you contribute. You know, sitting and thinking about it, as Eric talked about today, isn't going to be enough. You actually have to move forward. So, you know, take some time for yourself. Think about it. Meditate. Envision what the future is going to be like, the positive side of what you're doing. Because most of us are locked into, or many, pardon me, are locked into fear. So we want to release that because you have something to contribute in spite of Eric's counselor saying that he wouldn't amount to anything or he should never go to UCLA. He went and you can do what you need to do and what you're called to as well. Thank you for listening as always, giving us your most valuable commodity, your time. If you like what you're doing, please pass it on, share, leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're listening. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.